You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. She was the first female pilot to traverse the Atlantic Ocean. Her daring do made her a pioneer and a celebrity. Aviation, this young modern giant, exemplifies the possible relationship of women and the creation of science. Amelia Earhart embodied the adventuresome spirit of 1930s aviation. And then, while attempting another pioneering flight, this time around the world, the famous aviator was no more. Amelia Earhart, to me, was like a comet that shot across the night sky in the 1930s. And she just blazed a trail all through the night sky, and she just disappeared. 80 years on, and we are still asking, what happened to Amelia Earhart? The Earhart mystery is perhaps the greatest unsolved mystery of the 20th century, and we feel like we've got a good chance of solving it at some point. As humans, uncertainty makes us squirm when an unexplained event remains unexplained for too long. That gnaws at us. We, we want answers. We want to know what that strange sound was, who committed that crime, who's behind the locked door. And if we don't have ready explanations for unusual events, well, we sometimes fill in the blanks with our own theories, whether evidence-based or created by our imagination. We can stay at this task obsessively like a dog with a bone, and there is one missing person case that has captured our attention like no other, the disappearance of Amelia Earhart. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology and devote one episode a month to critical thinking. In this episode of Skeptic Check, Amelia Earhart. We haven't stopped trying to solve the mystery of her disappearance, although conspiracy theories are few in this case, no aliens or Illuminati are suggested, the mystery is no less intriguing, and a definitive explanation continues to elude us. We might find ourselves seduced by the simplicity of one theory that she crashed, and the appeal of another that she managed to land the plane and survive. And the challenge is to keep an open mind and just look at the facts. And why is it that we're so uncomfortable with the idea of uncertainty anyway? It's skeptic check, Amelia Earhart. I myself still fly a wasp motor, which has carried me over the North Atlantic part of the Pacific to and from Mexico City and many times across this continent. 
Amelia Earhart had had a lot of flying experience when she attempted her round-the-world flight. She and her navigator, Fred Noonan, were, according to the best estimates, merely 100 miles, 160 kilometers, from their planned intermediate refueling stop in the Pacific Ocean, Howland Island, when she lost radio contact with the U.S. Coast Guard ship Itasca, anchored nearby. The official search that unfolded over the summer of 1937 for the aviator and her custom-built Lockheed Model 10 Electra was the most expensive and extensive yet undertaken by the Navy. The whole country, the world, was in shock. Amelia Earhart had beguiled a Depression-era public with her charisma, her adventuresome spirit. She had planned an ambitious follow-up to her pioneering solo flight over the Atlantic, circumnavigating the globe. Flying west to east was the plan, starting in Oakland, California. From there, there would be 30 landings, including stops in Miami, South America, Africa, and the Indian subcontinent before she landed in New Guinea, the large island north of Australia. Now, while they were on that island to refuel, she and Fred Noonan undoubtedly reflected on their accomplishments so far. Three-fourths of their circumnavigation was complete. What remained? 7,000 miles, or 11,000 kilometers, of Pacific Ocean, with two landings to go before her arrival in California. Their next stop was Howland Island, a small atoll where the Coast Guard's Itasca was providing support through air navigation and radio links. But as the Electra approached the island, Amelia Earhart reported that she was no longer able to hear the Itasca's radio transmissions. But the Coast Guard could hear her, saying that she was flying low at 1,000 feet, her last words were a report on the plane's compass heading as she tried to find Howland Island by flying north and south. Why Amelia couldn't communicate with the Itasca and what happened next have provoked speculation for more than eight decades, says John Norberg, author of Wings of Their Dreams, A History of Early Aviation. He held the post of Director of Communications for Development at Purdue University, where Amelia Earhart lectured. The school helped raise funds to purchase the Lockheed Electra she flew. She and her navigator, Fred Noonan, took off uh, from New Guinea, headed for uh, Howland Island. Howland is just a teardrop of an island about two miles long, half mile wide in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. This was the most difficult part of the trip. After that, they were flying to Hawaii, which is relatively easy, and then finally back to the United States, which they couldn't miss uh, if they just simply flew to the east. Now, Howland Island, uh, I've looked it up, and, and indeed, it's just a tiny little atoll. It's more or less right on the equator, where the equator intersects the international date line. There isn't a whole lot of real estate around this thing. I mean, she couldn't refuel there, could she? I mean, there was, there's no facility, no landing strip. Uh, why Howland Island? Oh, yes, there was a landing strip there, and she could refuel. And there was a, a Coast Guard cutter was helping her, the Itasca, uh, they were supposed to be in communication with her, but it was very poor communication. So yes, this was this was a scheduled stop, and uh, there was the, the island was used during World War II. So yes, she she could fuel there, she could land. All right, you say that the Itasca was in contact with her. At what point were they in contact with her? Because I understand there was some uh, some disconnect, if you will, <laughs> between the Itasca's radio system and the radio system on board Earhart's plane. Yes, to quote a famous movie, what we have here is a failure of communication. The Itasca and the Mia were not communicating together. The Itasca ship could hear a Mia do, doing several transmissions, and uh, she would ask them for information. They would radio back to her, but she did not receive the signal. She kept saying, I don't get any message from you. What is the matter? 
there are, there are a number of explanations for that. Uh, the, the people in the Itasca really were not enthusiastic about doing this job. They didn't feel that was part of their uh, mission. And uh, there was some failure of communicating beforehand between uh, Amelia and the officers on the ship as to when they would speak to one another. Amelia didn't take all the communications equipment uh, that she might have on this trip, possibly to save her fuel. And she wasn't experienced at using some of the advanced communication equipment that was coming out. We should also note that her navigator, Fred Noonan, was using celestial navigation. Pretty primitive. All right, so what was her last known position? When did they last hear from her? Well, her last, you know, words to them was, she said, you know, we must be on you, but we cannot see you. Fuel is running low, but unable to reach you by radio. We are flying at 1,000 feet. Uh, we are running north and south, and that was it. So running north and south, trying to see uh, Howland Island. Was this uh, still during daylight, or was this at night, or what? This was during the morning, uh, early morning, 7, 7 uh, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock in the morning. And the, the Itasca was sending smoke up into the air in, in huge amounts to try and uh, help her beam in on it. So they were doing other things and just talking to her by radio to try and guide her. She saw nothing in this, this ship just belching smoke into the air. She didn't see any of it. Yeah, you know, you say she was only at 1,000 feet. Uh, you know, we're kind of used to the, the views that you get from 25,000, 35, or even 40,000 feet in a commercial jetliner where you can see, you know, 200 miles to the horizon, but at 1,000 feet, you don't see very far. I guess it's no. uh, quite easy no. to lose an atoll there. So there are different theories about what happened to her. Maybe we could look over them briefly. The most straightforward theory is crash and sink. Uh, she just ran out of fuel and plunged into the Pacific. Is this the most widely accepted theory? Well, I think it is. Either she ran out of fuel and crashed into the ocean, or she somehow landed uh, on a small island, or, uh, as some people have speculated, she was captured by the Japanese. But, you know, there's no proof of anything that happened, so um, we don't really know. So, all right, one possibility, her plane is at the bottom of the ocean at, I don't know, 17,000 feet or something. That's right. typical for that, that area. Uh, 17,000 feet is pretty deep. Could you conceivably go search for something like that? Well, I, I probably not. Uh, that, it probably is too deep for our technology today. Another piece of evidence here that might give you some clue as to where to look for her were the reports from radio amateurs around the Pacific who claimed to be picking up signals from Amelia. Uh, and even days later, are those credible reports? Well, there were, there were quite a few of those. And, and uh, uh, credible, what, what do we mean by credible? Uh, there are some people who say that there were individuals doing that, putting out those messages, and people were picking them up. There were people picking him up. There was a 15-year-old girl in St. Petersburg, Florida, who picked up messages supposedly from Amelia Earhart. Uh, and there were many others where we're finding as the years go on. But there's no proof that those uh, were coming from Amelia Earhart, that they weren't just being transmitted by a prankster or someone else. And now, of course, at the frequency at which she would be transmitting, you couldn't really triangulate these radio amateurs, they didn't quite know where the signal might be coming from, but you could maybe say on the basis of the strength of the signal they were they were receiving, that would give you some indication of where she might be. Anything useful? At, at least some of them were picked up by children. By children, I mean 15-year-old uh, teenagers and uh, some adults as well. And these were people, in many cases, who had 
converted their radios into shortwaves. They had a long wire in their backyard and were using that as an antenna, and they would just go on the radio and go up and down the dial and see what they could pick up. I see. So well, that, that doesn't sound like it's very useful in terms of pinpointing where she might be. But the hypothesis here is that she and Fred Noonan survived a landing and were on land long enough to transmit signals and then presumably perished on the island. Right, and that the plane had to be operable for them to transmit those signals. And the most common th- things you hear is that Fred Noonan was uh, severely injured if this took place and didn't live long. I see. All right, and one of the possible places they could have landed, of course, is Nicomororo, better known as Gardner Island. Uh, right. Reasonable hypothesis? Well, yes, I think it's a reasonable hypothesis. Uh, why not? We know that the Tiger Organization is uh, looking in this area. They've been looking there before. They continue to do so. They're going about this scientifically. I'm all for anyone who wants to investigate this and find out what happened. We don't have the answer now. Maybe someday we will. One of the uh, theories that you mentioned was that she was captured by the Japanese, who were indeed in the area. But one would think that 70 years later, more than closer to 80 years later, that somebody in Japan would have uh, come up with some evidence that this had ever transpired. The documents would be someplace, and they probably would have turned up. Some of the the theories say that the Japanese captured her and uh, killed her. Others are that they just uh, used her. Some people have reported that that she was Tokyo Rose, although there's no proof to that. And, in fact, uh, her husband, George Palmer Putnam, listened to tapes of of a, a Tokyo Rose and said, that isn't my wife's voice. And uh, we don't even know who Tokyo Rose was, and it was probably several women. So, you know, some of these theories get to be a little implausible. Others, uh, such as that she may have landed on a small piece of land somewhere in the Pacific, they are possible. I I don't discount them as, as being impossible. Do you have a favorite? My own personal theory is that she crashed into the ocean. She ran out of fuel and crashed in the ocean, and she was far off course. But I don't discount efforts to discover that something else might have happened. In fact, I encourage it. Well, finally, John, what keeps us fascinated about this story, this mystery? Is it just because we don't know what happened? Is it, the, I don't know, the appeal of uh, this woman pilot? Why is it that here we are, you know, uh, so many years later, still wondering what happened to her, and uh, people are spending money and time trying to trying to solve the, the, the mystery. Amelia Earhart was one of the most fascinating women in, in our history. Amelia Earhart, to me, was like a comet that shot across the night sky in the 1930s. And she just blazed a trail all through the night sky, and she just disappeared. This is during the heart of the Great Depression. These were hard times for people, and they were watching this woman do these incredible things, breaking records, saying that women could do things that many people didn't accept that women could do. And she just disappears. There's no explanation. It bothers our, our senses that something like this could happen to someone that famous and who was doing so much that they just disappear. They just vanish. John Norberg, thank you so very much for speaking with us. Oh, I, I enjoyed doing it. Thank you very much. John Norberg is a journalist and the author of Wings of Their Dreams, A History of Early Aviation. When he mentioned that some of the last words from Amelia Earhart were that she was running north and south, 
what exactly does that mean? Well, I think that the interpretation there is that she felt she was at the right longitude. In other words, the right uh, meridian, if you prefer, the right distance east and west of Howland Island. But she thought she might be a little far north of it or a little far south of it. So she was just running on a compass direction. She was just using her compass, nothing else. It was cloudy over a lot of the trip, and, and Noonan couldn't get you know star positions. And so she's just running north-south, hoping to see the island. Coming up, new support for the theory that Amelia Earhart landed her plane and lived as a castaway. We'll hear from a pilot who has repeatedly traveled to the warm waters of the Pacific looking for proof, and he's returning this year. Find out why. It's Skeptic Check, Amelia Earhart on Big Picture Science. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Like any unsolved mystery, theories abound as to what happened to Amelia Earhart, and there are conflicting interpretations of the evidence. Now, we heard that there is no conclusive explanation for what happened to her, but some who are involved with the case say a preponderance of evidence supports the rather dramatic theory that she landed on an island south of her destination and lived for a short while as a castaway. John Norberg says that the multitude of radio signals that were claimed to have been picked up after the Electra's final transmission are inconclusive evidence. But pilot Andrew McKenna says that while some of these signals were deemed to be hoaxes, others are credible and provide useful information. They can be used to roughly determine a landing spot at Gardner Island, also known as Nicomororo, 400 miles south of the sought-for Howland Island. Since 1990, Mr. McKenna has been a member of the nonprofit organization dedicated to finding and preserving historic aircraft, the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, TIGER, or TIGHAR. As you can imagine, the Earhart Project is the organization's most high-profile activity. It's a fascinating endeavor that involves multidisciplinary scientific exploration. The group has found a number of artifacts on the remote island that are era-appropriate, among them buttons, a sextant, and evidence of a campsite. Mr. McKenna has traveled to Nicomororo a number of times in search of evidence that Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan landed there. The trip to the island requires a long flight and five days by boat in open ocean, and he plans to return in the summer of 2017, the 80th anniversary of her flight, to help with further excavation of a campsite where artifacts have been found. Tiger says the theory that the two aviators ended up as castaways on Nicomororo is bolstered by modern forensic science, which has taken a second look at bones found on the island in the 1940s. At that time, they were said to belong to a short man, but a new study using the original measurements and comparing them with measurements taken from photographs of Amelia Earhart now suggests that the bones could be a woman's. 
Mr. McKenna says Tiger believes that soon after she lost contact with the Itasca, she landed on the small atoll close to the water and sent out signals from the plane's radio before it was submerged. The initial search by the Navy was driven by the radio receptions that they were receiving. And the thought is that after she and Fred Noonan went missing, they were able to transmit from their airplane. And actually those signals were triangulated, and the triangulation is right in the area of Nicomororo in the South Pacific. Then if those Um, signals were identified, why was there any question as to where she landed? It sounds like that was conclusive. Well, yeah, you would think so. And what the Navy did was they sent a battleship down from Hawaii to, quote-unquote, search the Phoenix Islands, which is where Nicomororo is located. And what they did was they overflew the islands, uh, expecting to see Earhart's Lockheed Electra out on the beach or somewhere visible. And they didn't see what they were looking for, and so they kept moving. They moved on from island to island to island, overflew them, didn't see a big shiny airplane, and, and moved on. The search at that point moved up north where Howland Island is, and they did an open sea search. So the most logical place they went and, and quote-unquote, looked at, but they didn't really search it. They didn't put anybody ashore, and they didn't linger. And we feel that the airplane, by the time they got there, which was seven days after the fact, had been essentially washed out to sea. So that's one, is the post-loss signals. Three years later, the island was colonized by the Brits, and those folks found the skeleton of a castaway with a woman's shoe and a bottle of water and the remains of a campfire and a turtle and a sextant box, some pretty unusual things for a South Pacific island. And so that's another piece of evidence. A third one is that there was a colonial officer that took a photo in 1937, four months after she went missing, And it turns out in that photo, there's an object that looks for all the world like a Lockheed 10 landing gear. Then there's a body of folklore from the inhabitants of the island about the wreckage of the airplane that was there when they first got there in 1939. We've been there many times, Tiger, the organization I'm a part of, and have found pre-war aircraft aluminum. We found some pieces of plexiglass that match the curvature and the thickness of one of her windows. And we found a body of telegrams from the island administrator in the early 40s talking about the location of the castaway's skeleton. And we think we found that place where that skeleton was found by the colonial administrator. Okay, let's look at some of that evidence, because that does seem to be a lot, at the very least, circumstantial evidence. Has any of that been authenticated to have been that from Amelia Earhart or from that era? Now, you talked about the box of a sextant and a skeleton, which we can talk more about in a moment. I understand that there were also buttons and part of a knife and so forth. But as you said, that island was colonized later, 1940, by the British, and it is an island and things wash up on islands. So what makes you conclude or what draws the conclusion that they may have come from Amelia Earhart? There's nothing conclusive in any particular one piece of evidence so far. But as a, in a body, looking at it from an archaeological point of view, there's what we call a preponderance of evidence. And it all fits together in a nice story, if you will. We don't have anything conclusive yet. But, for example, if we were to find the bones that had been found in 1940, we would probably be able to do some DNA analysis and compare that to a sample from her family. That would be conclusive. 
Other things like the sextant box, for example, are very interesting because as reported by the finders, there were two numbers on the sextant box. There's no sextant, just the box. And we've done a lot of research into sextants, and it turns out the predominant group of sextants that have two numbers on the boxes are ex-World War I U.S. Navy surplus sextants. And we know that Fred Noonan, the navigator, carried one of these habitually as his sort of backup secondary unit. Um, so it makes sense that it would be there. It's not the kind of thing a Pacific Islander would be roaming around, a, a surplus U.S. Navy sextant. During the war, I mean, that 1940, the, the war was underway. It's possible. Uh, these are World War I-style sextants. Oh, I see. Um, sure, anything's possible. But is it likely? Not very likely. Nicomororo is very far away from all the World War II action. It's in one of the most remote parts of the Pacific because there's not much there. So is there a mariner that could have washed up there? Sure, it's possible. We know of one missing person who likely carried a surplus U.S. sextant who went missing right in that area. So the simplest answer really is to go with the person we know is missing in the area who likely carried that kind of sextant. Let's and that would be Fred Noonan. I want to follow up on that photo that you said was taken by a British officer. I've seen that photo. And it's a photo of the island. And you do see something sticking up out of the water. I don't know that I would have noticed it, but then I, I don't have a trained eye. But it's kind of a blurry object, and it's quite far away. It's not conclusive to my eye, for example, that it's part of an airplane. How was that concluded? Well, it is it is hard to see. And in fact, we didn't really see it in that photo for many years after we obtained it. We work with a volunteer forensic examiner, and he went to England and photographed at very high resolution the original photo and then analyzed it. And there are multiple components to that object. It's very small in the original photo. But under analysis, it has a very distinct architecture in that it has a, a straight piece that forks and a black blob between the forks and then a silvery piece to it. That's all the same architecture as the Lockheed 10 landing gear, which had a, a fork. And the tire, of course, is the black blob. And the silvery thing that's around it is the mud flap. So there's several different components, and under analysis, the angle of the fork is, at least to my eye, exactly the same as the Lockheed 10 landing gear angles. And that would be very, very unusual to find another object that would have that same assemblage of components and the angles to match. So the working hypothesis that you and the other members of Tiger share is that Amelia Earhart ran out of fuel and she landed there, uh, survived for days with Fred Noonan, and then and then perished? Essentially, yeah. She probably wasn't completely out of fuel when she landed, but having been in the air for 24 hours with an endurance of 24 hours, you, <laughs> you'd want to land at the first opportunity you possibly could. She probably was able to recharge the battery over the first five days with some, whatever remaining fuel she had. But eventually the airplane gets washed off the reef flat in the rising tide, and they're marooned. The Navy flies over. They are looking for an airplane. They don't see a little person on the, you know, in the trees or wherever. 
They fly on. They're literally marooned. And at that point, what do you do? You go and start exploring your island. The fact that there's only one castaway found in 1940 and the fact that that castaway was on the surface means that if there were two of them, the first one perished and was probably buried or at least covered over with rocks. The last one doesn't get buried. They end up on the surface. You're referring to the skeleton that was found on that end of the island. Now, that skeleton was found in the 1940s, I believe, and those bones have not been seen by anybody since. So the analysis that you're drawing on is from the analysis that was done, you know, almost 80 years ago. And at that time, it wasn't it thought to be, those bones were thought to be that of a man, maybe a stockyish man. And now Tiger has come forth and said, at least in the summer of 2016, that it may be that those bones are that of a woman, a tall woman, and Amelia Earhart was somewhere around 5'7", or a little bit taller. How did that new analysis of the bones come to light when you don't have the bones themselves to work with? We don't have the bones. And by the way, there's only 13 of the major bones, and the human body has, you know, over 200. So somewhere out there, there's 190-something or other more bones. Okay, so um, skeleton is a little too generous to say. It is, but okay. but there was the skull and the and the jaw and some of the major arm and leg bones, part of the pelvis. What happened was they got shipped to Fiji, and along the way they got examined by a doctor who took measurements, same measurements that you know a forensic doctor would take today, and we have those measurements. So you can take the same measurements that he took and put them into the modern-day forensic database. And this was done by a couple of forensic anthropologists that we were working with back in, I think it was 1994 or something like that. And they came out with an analysis that was more likely female than male and most similar to Norse female, which, of course, is Amelia Earhart's extraction. Is it definitive? No, it is not definitive, but... That's what they came up with. And what the news that came out most recently was that in the skeleton of the castaway, the relationship between the humerus and the radius in the forearm to the upper arm is unusually long in the measurements. And so we endeavor to determine to see whether or not Earhart had a similarly long forearm compared to her upper arm. And in fact, she does. The ratio is essentially the same as that measured with the castaway. Is that definitive? No, it's not. But it's if she didn't have that ratio, as does the skeleton, it would rule her out. You know, it has to be taken with a little bit of grain of salt, but it does... It's just one more piece of the puzzle that fits nicely. So what you're saying is that there, there's no one piece of evidence that is conclusive in solving the mystery of what happened to Amelia Earhart, but there is so much evidence that points to her and Fred Noonan having landed on this island, survived for a time, and, and then passed away. Um, you know, today, uh, well, you're a pilot, and as you know, today we have GPS. Can you imagine flying something like the Electra and not having GPS and navigating with the rudimentary instruments that she had? Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm really glad we have GPS now. <laughs> it would have been a daunting task. You know, 2,300, 2,400 miles over water is a long way for even today. 
And I wonder when you when you do these trips, as you have done many times, and you're going to do another one, uh, which I want to ask you about in a moment, if you find yourself putting yourself in Amelia Earhart's shoes or Fred Noonan's shoes under yeah, those conditions. absolutely. When we're there, it's it's a difficult place to operate in. It's you know it's one of those places where anything that can go wrong will go wrong. And when you're ashore, it's it's very hot, so you're sweating constantly. If you're in the sun or out of the wind, it's it can get up to about 110 degrees. So water would become the limiting factor in a very short period of time. There's there's lots of things you can eat. You can catch birds. There's eggs in the nests. There's lots of crabs. But fresh water would be a huge problem. So I imagine a very difficult existence and probably one that did not last a particularly long time. I mean, you know, it's like how long did she last is a good question. Was it two days or two weeks or two months or two years? It was long enough to go exploring and set up a camp, you know, around the perimeter of the island a a good couple miles away from where we think she landed. But it would have been a very difficult existence. Well, finally, Andrew, you and your team are going back for yet another search in the summer of 2017. This will be the 80th anniversary of her crash or her disappearance, we should say. What are you hoping to find on this trip? Well, this year's trip is a little different than some of the ones in the past in that we're coordinating with a a semi-scientific tour operator, which is Betchart Expeditions. So there are actually paying passengers who are going to make up some of the crew. And there is still room on the boat in case any of your listeners would like to sign up. So they're volunteer scientists. We're going to go to the Seven site or the Castaway site and do more archaeological work there. Um, which could potentially include using some forensic dogs to do some work if they can locate a a gravesite. Forensic dogs, for example, get used to find Civil War graves, so they can actually sniff out the resting places of 150-year-old gravesites. We're also going to do some work in the lagoon. There's a body of anecdotes that say that some of the wreckage from this airplane that was there when they first got there washed into the lagoon. So we want to do some work, both metal detecting and also with side scan sonar, in the lagoon. But the idea is we're trying to utilize whatever tools we have to get there to do what we can do when we get there. Now, the object always is to find some diagnostic artifact, and you just don't know where it's going to come from. But you definitely won't find it unless you go and look. Well, Andrew, if you and your team do find something, will you come back and talk to us about it? Well, I imagine if we find a diagnostic artifact that it will be big time news and will be all over the <laughs> all over the media. But absolutely, I would be delighted to talk more about it. It's been a particular passion of mine, and it's been a heck of a lot of fun along the road as well. I'm really gathering that. Andrew McKenna, thank you so much for speaking with us. Well, thanks for having me. Andrew McKenna is a pilot and researcher with TIGER, the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery. They reckon that the preponderance of evidence favors the castaway theory, but a challenge has been issued to the most recent and compelling part of their argument, the latest forensic analysis of those bones. That's next, coming up. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. 
I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. The new forensic analysis of the bones found on Nikumararu have encouraged the Tiger researchers as well as others who believe that it supports the castaway theory. But when the magazine Popular Science covered the new analysis in the fall of 2016, its tone was skeptical. It asked, why wasn't the forensic analysis submitted to a scientific journal to be independently peer-reviewed? Claire Maldarelli is an editor at Popular Science. This evidence comes from Teghar, and the evidence is they looked at this photo of Amelia Earhart from the time, which is in the 1930s, 1937, and they measured her forearm, and they got that measurement, and then they compared it to the measurements of the forearms of these bones that were found on this island that they think are Amelia Earhart's bones. And what they decided was that they matched, that they fit the description, the length, and the the height that Amelia Earhart was. And so they presented this as this hypothesis that these could have been her bones. However, Teghart um, didn't publish this information into a peer-reviewed journal. So all they did was they kind of set out this press release saying that they had found this information. And what people typically do in these cases, and they will present this information into a journal, and this will get edited by a group of their peers, and then it will be published that way. And so this editing process or this, you know, peer reviewing process is actually really important for science because it allows people who are not involved with the study at all to kind of take a second look and to really understand whether these facts they're presenting based on their knowledge of the subject matter really hold water. These were bones that were found on this atoll, Nicomarora, which is sometimes called Gardner Island, I believe. But in any case, it's a small hunk of real estate, very small. I guess you can walk around it in an <laughs> afternoon there in the western South Pacific where Amelia Earhart presumably tried to land a plane after she had some sort of difficulties. And they find these bones. But the bones were found in the 1940s, and they haven't been seen in decades. Nobody seems to know where these bones are. And indeed, at the time that they were found, they were thought to be bones of a man, not of a woman. So Tigar, even aside from saying, look, these bones match in length what we would measure from a photo of Amelia Earhart, why did they claim those were even the bones of a woman? 
Yeah, they originally didn't. So these bones, like you said, were found in 1940. And British officials or British authorities at the time sent them to this medical hospital or medical school in Fiji. And this doctor named Dr. Hoodless declared that they were from a man. And then shortly after that, they were actually destroyed. They're either completely destroyed or no one has access to these bones or they're gone. So they're really just working off of this one guy's notes from the 1940s. So originally, he had decided that these bones were from a short, stocky man, so someone who, you know, at the time was either 5'6 or 5'7. And then later on, they decided that, well, you know, Amelia Earhart was pretty tall. She was about 5'7 or 5'8. And so they decided that this actually could be from a woman who was just really tall or above average height. Okay, but to be fair, the guy who claimed that these were the bones of a guy... Uh, on the island of Fiji in 1940. I mean, he was qualified to make such claims, wasn't he? I mean, he wasn't just a random guy off the streets. He was a medical doctor or forensic uh, analyst of some sort. Yeah, definitely. So since then, you know, a bunch of people have looked at it and they've, you know, determined that actually it could be from a woman who is five foot seven, five foot eight. But, you know, that that sort of adds to the mystery of this because we don't know for sure if it was from a man or from a woman. But, you know, just by opening up the possibility that it's from a woman has kind of triggered all these different paths that now Tigar has gone down because they said, you know, this could be from a woman. One of the questions raised in the Popular Science article is why haven't there been more rigorous studies of the evidence? But given the absence of evidence in this case, I mean, what might that look like? What would he prefer that they had done or are doing? You know, in any scientific discovery, it's always based on peer-reviewed journals. And so these peer-reviewed big publications like Science and Nature and Cell and all these articles that go into these journals have been peer-reviewed by people who have not been involved in the research, but they are scientists who that area of research is their expertise. And so that's sort of our basis in science for saying that this information or this research that they're presenting is credible because it's sort of been backed by their peers. Now, that's not always the case. You know, different studies will disprove other studies. You know, that always happens. That's just science. But that's not what Tigar did in this case. And I think that's been overlooked in the media a lot, that they've made this big discovery, but, you know, it hasn't been peer-reviewed like a lot of other, all other scientific discoveries. Yes. Well, generally, if you have a result that's new, you want to put it in a peer-reviewed journal. But on the other hand, right. if you if you don't, doesn't mean that it's wrong. It just means it hasn't appeared in a peer-reviewed journal. Tigar might be onto something here. I mean, they seem to be convinced that she may have landed at Nicomororo, uh, sometimes called Gardner Island, it, not just the bones that were found in 1940, but other artifacts, uh, I believe shoes, a makeup near a piece of aluminum that some people claim came from the Lockheed Electra. That's not hucksterism. That's a plausible hypothesis. Definitely. I think it is. And I think an important thing to note here is that this guy, Rick Gillespie, who's the director of Tegar, this is, you know, this is his life. This is what he devotes his livelihood to. So, he just has so much knowledge, and I think of anyone on the planet, maybe he has the most knowledge of Amelia Earhart's disappearance and all the theories behind it. And so I think that in itself has a lot of credibility there. Well, finally, Claire, in the summer of 2017, 80th anniversary of Amelia Earhart's disappearance, Tikar is planning another expedition to Nicomarora. 
Will popular science cover that? Oh, definitely. You know, Amelia Earhart was just such an interesting public figure. I mean, she was the first woman to fly across the Atlantic solo, and this was she was going to be the first woman, if she had made it, to fly across the world. So understanding or getting to the bottom of her mysterious disappearance is definitely of interest to popular science. Claire Maldarelli, thank you so very much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Clara Maldarelli is an editor at Popular Science. Its article on the latest analysis of the Earhart mystery, written by reporter Peter Hess, is in the November 2016 issue. What happened to Amelia Earhart in July of 1937? In this 80th anniversary year, we still don't know. But we have two leading theories. So we could embrace the Occam's razor approach, opting for the most straightforward and simplest explanation, namely that she was flying into bad weather, lost radio contact just short of Howland Island, became confused about her position, ran out of fuel, and crashed into the Pacific. The other theory is bolstered by an accumulation of circumstantial evidence collected from Nikumararo. A number of buttons, a sextant like the one preferred by Fred Noonan, a piece of sheet metal from an airplane, an old photograph and anecdotal reports of a partly sunken plane, and human bones that could belong to a female. Yet there's no definite proof of either theory, so we can't put this mystery to rest. Such uncertainty can be maddening, especially in this case, which involves a charismatic and pioneering woman, a celebrated flight, and an abrupt disappearance. Our minds want answers. And yet uncertainty is the nature of science, innovation, and risk-taking, says Andrew Maynard, the director of the Risk Innovation Lab at Arizona State University. There are times when, if we're going to make progress, for example in science or developing new technologies, we need to adjust to there being a period of not knowing. Andrew, in 1937, Amelia Earhart tried to circumnavigate the world. She took an enormous risk. And, right. uh, and, and you know, even aside from knowing how that risk turned out, whether it was a justifiable risk or not, we are left with this mystery, a great uncertainty about what happened to her. And right. as a species, we seem to be uncomfortable with that. We, we seem to have a need for closure. Why is that? That's odd behavior. It is. I'm not entirely sure that that's true. And let me explain why. I think it's true in some cases, and it's all really context dependent. So in in some cases, um, uncertainty just drives our curiosity. We want to know what's in the box. We want to find out stuff that we don't know. In other cases, it really scares us, especially when something important to us is at risk. We want to know what the chances are of losing something, whether it's our life or our health or our income, because those things are important to us. So it really depends critically on the context we're talking about. Well, there's uncertainty in everyday life. I mean, I can't get up and get through the day without uncertainty and taking risks. So There uh, absolutely is, yes. So, I mean, how am I dealing with that in my mind? I don't, I don't find myself you know, confronting it every 20 minutes or that kind of thing. Right. And and this is part of the beauty of how we've evolved. Actually, we've got sort of the subconscious sort of systems in our brain that deal with an awful lot of the uncertainty. So we don't have to think about it and have angst over it. And in fact, we find sometimes we're actually fine just not knowing what's going to happen until somebody makes us think about it. And that pushes us over into anxiety. 
If we're not given an explanation for some event, I mean, uh, I don't know, maybe the Titanic or something like that, although there are explanations now, but, right. but, but does that create a sort of a vacuum that we often see filled with conspiracy theories? I mean, people cook up reasons for things oh, even when, when they're not necessary, right? Absolutely. And again, I, I think this is a byproduct of our curiosity. So if there's something that just tickles our interest, but there's no evidence to say what exactly happened. So we're looking at a black box here. It is so easy to fill that black box uh, with, with wild ideas. And of course, the way that our brain works, which isn't really sort of rational as, as we think of the word um, or the term rationality, it's really easy for our brain to come up with stories that seem as if they make sense as to what might have happened. And the less evidence there is, the more likely we are to make up these, these weird, sometimes crazy stories. Yeah, we'll blame the government or aliens or whatever, right? Well, that, that's right. And then you come to the psychology of, of how this works. So there's something, for instance, called confirmation bias, where we have an idea of we think we know what happened, and we try and piece together bits of evidence that support that. Or motivated reasoning, where we want something to have happened, and we find ways of justifying that. You also study how to evaluate risk. Uh, what about the case of Amelia Earhart trying this trip around the world in particular, right. you know, over the Pacific Ocean where she couldn't do it in one hop? I mean, uh, <laughs> was, was that a grossly irrational thing to do? You know, I don't think it was irrational. There were tremendous risks there, but I'm guessing to her there were also tremendous benefits, not really monetary benefit, but just the thing of importance to her of actually being able to do it and say that she'd done it. So I'm guessing, and this is pure speculation, that she was thinking, okay, there are big risks here, but if it pays off, it's going to be worth that risk. So that's uh, the sort of daring that uh, kind of drives exploration, right? I mean, I'm thinking of the people who tried to reach the South Pole more than a century ago. There wasn't, Absolutely. Any, there wasn't any gold down there, but, uh, you know, they might sell a few books or something. Right. And there was the glory of it. And, of course, you had that whole British tradition of failure where it was almost sort of better to fail trying to reach the South Pole than to succeed. Um, but, again, I think an important thing here is in some cases we tend to discount the risk, um, especially when we're going into the unknown, especially where the rewards, personal rewards to us are so great, will tend to downplay what the likelihood of something bad happening is. Well, finally, Andrew, the case of Amelia Earhart. Uh, we don't like uncertainty. We're not certain what happened to her. Maybe she just went into the drink, but maybe she didn't. And we want to deal with that even all this time later. Do you think we'll ever get beyond that? Or will this be like, well, the Titanic again, or maybe even what happened in Roswell 70 years ago, a never ending story? You know, I really hope we don't get over it because, yeah, those are seemingly never-ending stories, but if we didn't have that curiosity, we wouldn't create new things and find out new things that are really pushing forward innovation in society. Andrew Maynard, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thanks, Seth. Andrew Maynard is the director of the Risk Innovation Lab at Arizona State University. So the disappearance of Amelia Earhart is a case where we need to engage our critical thinking because there are three possible scenarios that could have unfolded. And we may be attached to one or the other just because it makes for a more interesting story or it makes for a simplified story. Yeah, I think that there is a tendency to adopt the, the more interesting story. I mean, the most straightforward story, she just crashed, okay? But, you know, then the evidence is essentially unreachable, you know, way down there at the bottom of the ocean. We'll, we'll never know anything. Whereas 
if she managed to land the plane to begin with, that's much more romantic. I mean, she landed the plane. She really was a terrific pilot. And not only that, she might have made it out if only something else had happened, if only the radio had managed to reach the Itasca in time. So this is a compelling theory that she landed and lived as a castaway, and it's built on the preponderance of evidence. But it's all circumstantial, right? Well, it is. I mean, it's <laughs> it's maybe not incontrovertible evidence, at least not so far. The incontrovertible evidence of course, would be to find the Electra, find the plane. So we get attached to a better ending to the story. Right. And we can get emotionally attached to it and realize that we are so attached we're not considering the evidence with an open mind. You're not a good skeptic. Well, thanks to the people who never disappear when helping us produce this show, except for maybe lunch breaks, Senior producer Gary Niederhoff, operations manager Barbara Vance, and intern Sarah McQuaid. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit scientific and education organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life, including scanning the skies with its Allen Telescope Array. And a big thanks also to our listeners. I'm just kidding. There are no lunch breaks. Your ears have been attuned to our monthly look at critical thinking skeptics check Amelia Earhart. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science episodes, well, you'll find them in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. And if you're a podcast listener, but prefer listening to over-the-air radio because doing so may help you reach your destination, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, and if you listen to our show via iTunes, we invite you to leave a review on our iTunes page and to reach us directly with your comments while well, throw in that faint praise and then email it all to bigpicturescience at seti.org. Tell them you'll soon be back, dear. But what will I tell my heart? Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.